How's everybody doing? Yeah, man, it has been a just a just a like a powder keg of energy this morning, just from the first gathering. You know, I said this when everybody like I came in and Dave Dave noticed this right away because he's I don't know if you know this Dave is like emotionally attuned. Um, he he has dialed into to his own emotions and others. Um, but he's like, what's, what's wrong, man? And, and we were running behind. It was just a lot of different things. Um, and I just came in. I, I mean, sometimes you think the pastor must always be on, uh, and that is rarely true. Um, but I came in, and this is what I love about church. I really, I would, I always say this. I would come here, and this would be my my home, whether I uh, worked here or not, because it changes. The, you know, the the temperature of my heart and the temperature of the room changes as we worship, because I was kind of just. You know, thinking in 19 different directions, things that are happening outside the walls of the church and things that are happening in the church. And then as worship started, it was just like chains broke. Things happened. And my heart was free and happy in an instant. Now, it doesn't happen that way all the time. But I just, I was so thankful that Jesus is the biggest part of my story and that he is everything to me. That he, I was created by and for him. And I I just say that in the beginning uh, to, to say, if, you, if, if you're still trying to figure it out, like if you're, and I know every week we have people here that um, are trying to figure out, you know, what they believe about eternity, what they believe about the world, what they believe about Jesus. Um, and I'm just, I'm here to tell you, he's real and he changes things in an instant. Something as small as my crappy attitude and things as big as healing your body and more importantly than that, changing the trajectory of your eternity. So if if, if, if I say anything else, I mean, that's the thing I want you to know is that he's real, he's alive, he's in this room, and you're not here by accident. And um, I just love it. I love being here. Um, if you got your Bible, turn me to 1 John chapter 4. I've loved studying the Bible together. I love that we kind of, not that it's more relaxed than our normal Sunday gatherings, but it's almost like, you know, if we could, you know, I know there's, you know, well over 100 people in here, but, you know, like you're in a living room, and we're breaking down the Word of God together. We're talking through um, these particular passages and learning together, but also our eyes are opening to the glory of the gospel by the power of His Holy Spirit. Like when you open the Word of God, things change in our heart. Like it never returns void. It's never a bad thing to open the Word of God and read it. And as I was reading this passage, I don't know why, you know, I started thinking about this idea of being set apart. And I remember something, you know, my wife wasn't in the first gathering, and I talked about her, and she's probably going to be upset at me, but I... Years ago, I remember talking to uh, several friends of hers and one particular friend who uh, they were applying to grad school together uh, at Florida State. It was a really hard uh, college to get into uh, for grad school. And the way they did it back then, I don't know how grad schools work now, but um, they, they would have the dean of the college and then several professors would be in there. And you would go in one by one and you would interview. Uh, and it was kind of a level playing field. A lot of these people have done, had done well in school, did, did good on the GRE, and they're all trying, vying for positions uh, in this particular grad school. And she goes in, and the way that the, the girl tells the story, she's like, we were, we were all sitting outside and all trying to lean in and listen. You couldn't hear, really hear anything. And she said, all of a sudden we heard roaring laughter. Like everybody was laughing really loud. And then the interview was over, and one of the professors walks out, and she's in tears, like crying. And she's like, how in the world? She's looking at Beth like, I don't know what you did, you know, on the GRE, but you got into grad school. 
Like if you made them laugh and you made them cry, you've definitely set yourself apart from the rest of us. Now, my wife would tell you the reason that they laughed is because I screwed up royally in the interview. So that's my wife because she's self-deprecating and doesn't want me to talk nice about her. So I had to tell you that it was a big mistake that made them all laugh. But she did make somebody emotionally cry because she was talking about empathy and what it's like to be a secret. I don't know. It was just, yeah, she's awesome. Anyway, the whole idea, and when I, I think we all get that, like this idea of a group of people that are all on a level playing field vying for a position. We know that in the job market. We know that in competition to get into school. All students know what that's like, like all trying to score well on the SAT so that they can get to specific colleges. The idea of competition, the idea of how you perform and what you do in life is how you compete. Like I was reading articles on Glassdoor, like how do you get a job? How do you set yourself apart in the job market? And all of it was, I mean, it's interesting. It's like all of it was like crush your competition. Whoever they are, I don't care if it's your friend, find out what their weakness is and leverage you know, that against them. Like do whatever you can to crush the competition and set yourself apart. Now, what's interesting about Scripture and what's interesting about this passage is that it's, it is a theme in Scripture, this idea that as Christians, you and I, that God calls us to be set apart. He calls us to be different. Although we look like everybody else on the planet, although that we have so many similarities, we are made, all made in the image of God. When you become a follower of Jesus, and even in the Old Testament, for the, the Israelites, they were to be set apart for God. I, God. I am your God, and you are my people. And as we get into the new covenant, there, there's a whole different type of setting apart. And for us, I think for me, when I, when I hear that term, it reminds me of, I don't know how you grew up, if you grew up in a religious circles, you know, Baptist church, Methodist church, Presbyterian church, wherever you grew up. If you grew up in the Southeast, I think for many of us, the way, at least when I was young, the way I thought about churches, Christians are good and everybody else is snotty. Like that's just kind of the idea. I don't know why I have to say it like that, but it's just... You know, and I went to a Christian school for 15 years, and this idea of being set apart was, you know, you don't drink, you don't smoke, you don't dance, and that was true in my school. There was no dance. It was, seriously, the movie Footloose, that was my school, and they, you don't drink, you don't dance, you don't smoke, you don't do any of those things, and that's how you set yourself apart, so you don't hamper your Christian testimony. Like, you don't ruin it. You know, you don't want anybody to, you don't want to, people, people are looking at you and they're expecting you to be Christian. If you act unchristian, then you're going to ruin it. You're going to, that's how it's going to be. We are a city on a hill looking down on everybody else that's naughty. I mean, that's kind of the way that I thought about it. But, but it's absolutely not the way that scripture, now, does it mean that if you follow Jesus that morally your life might look different than the rest of the world? Absolutely. Absolutely. But at the, down at the root level, just improving the outside, what would Jesus say? He would say, you're a whitewashed tomb. If you don't deal with the sin, if you don't deal with the, the heart issues, what he had a problem with the Pharisees is they, they cleaned themselves up. They did all the right things. And he said, you're dead inside. So there's got to be something deeper, right? Jesus was leaning into it. Like there's got to be something at the heart level that's changed to actually force that. I want to be different. I'm forsaking the things that lead me to death, and I'm walking towards the things that lead me to life because Jesus has changed something inside of me. And I love thinking about the, the course of history, Christians in the course of history. Now, we've not always done, done it right, certainly. There's some historical issues with being associated with religion and the Christian religion. 
But for centuries, especially in the, in the first century, second century, and third century, and fourth century, there was such a mark that was beautiful about the church. In fact, um, the Emperor Julian in the fourth century, he grew up a, a, a Christian. He's, I think he was the nephew of um, Constantine, who kind of instituted as the national religion. But he had reverted everything back to um, you know, a pagan religion, you know, the, the Greek gods, the, Roman, the Greco-Roman gods. And he eventually got to the point where he, he celebrated the pagan gods, but really didn't believe in anything. He was, he was an atheist, and he hated Christianity with a passion. He wanted to eradicate it from Rome, period. He didn't want it around. But he was frustrated, and this is why he was frustrated. And some of you have probably read this before, but he, these, this, these are literally his words. He says about the, the Christian Jews that were in and around um, the Roman Empire. He said, it is a scandal that there is not a single Jew, and he's talking about Christian Jews, who is a beggar. And that the godless Galileans, and when he calls them godless Galileans, he means they don't, they don't like our pagan gods. They don't like our pantheon of gods. And that the godless Galileans... Christians care not only for their own poor, but for ours as well. He was frustrated. He's like, I can't, we can't stop this movement. And he's telling his people, he's saying, and this is why they're so good at really sacrificially loving people. And not just their own people, the people you would expect them, not just the ones that look like them that are in their circles, but the people outside of their circles. They're extending their lives and extending their hearts, extending their very being to them. They were literally taking babies that were being abandoned on the streets and adopting them into their family, representing the gospel physically in the fourth century. Now that is being set apart in a different way. What drives the heart to do that? Well, John leads us so beautifully in this passage. If you got your Bible, first, first John chapter 4, starting in verse 7. And we talked about this theme, and you'll feel this if you've been with us the last few weeks, this theme of being the children of God and what makes you, what marks you, what indicates to the rest of the world that you are a child of God. He says, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. And then he gets direct. He says, everyone who loves has been born of God or is a child of God in some of your translations and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. Now, we've already broken down kind of the directness of John in saying, if you don't do this and you do this and if you don't do this and if you do this, you know, we, we, we think, well, we're, we're not good at a lot of things. What's John saying? All John's doing is trying to give you a picture of understanding and knowing if you are or you aren't a child of God. He's not saying you better love better or you'll be a child of God because you can't earn your way into the kingdom of heaven. And John himself would say that in many different ways, not only in 1 John saying, hey, if, there's no, if you say that you're without sin, then you're a liar. I mean, he's very clear. But he's, he's wanting us to know and understand what does it look like to follow Jesus? What does it look like to be a believer. In other words, if you are a child of God, you have love in you. It's just like the Apostle Paul in the epistles. He presents the gospel in Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, but then in 4, 5, and 6, he says this is what it looks like. A lot of people say, call those the command epistles, like you should do this, you shouldn't do this, you should do this, you shouldn't do this. If you drink too much, you're in big trouble. If you do this, you're going to... No, the Apostle Paul is saying this is what is possible if you've become a believer. It's not necessarily that you will do these things, but you could live this free. 
you could follow the commands that lead you to life rather than following the ways of the world that lead you to death. And he says that, and that's John. John's trying to say, hey, this is what it looks like. But, but when I read this passage, and I think if you have grown up in church, or even if you haven't, you've probably heard, you know, they will know us by our love. You know, they, we've probably sung those songs, you know, in the church, you know. How are they going to know us? They'll know us by our love, by our love. You know, you had probably motions, you know. You know, Abby would be dancing, you know, worship aerobics, you know, getting down up here. Um, but, but you have to ask the question. I think sometimes we pass by that. They'll know us by our love. So as a community, Ocean City Church, we need to love people better. We need to love Jacksonville Beach better, Neptune Beach, Ponte Vedra, where, wherever. We need, to, we need to be kinder. We need to, and we have an idea in our mind. But what's beautiful about Scripture and about the way that God's created us is that we, we have a depth that we can dig deeper into the idea of what does it mean to love one another? This love that comes from God, what kind of love is it? So today, I, I want to I kind of follow three different areas, but the first thing I want to do is ask the question, what is love? Like, what is love? And I know, you're, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, this is going to be a four-hour sermon. Because, I mean, love's pretty broad. Like, I love tacos, and I love my wife. They're, they're different, right? I mean, there's a spectrum of love. You know, in fact, somebody in the first gathering said, that might have been the best sermon you've ever preached. And I was like, I was thinking why, and I was like, it's because it was the shortest one. So just, I mean, you know, you're going to be okay. We're going to make it. Um, what is love? And, and you've you got you to gotta break this down and see that when you look at this idea and you read, dear friends, let us love one another, what is, what is the translation? One, what's the Greek translation? I mean, if we're doing Bible study, let's, let's look at it. You know, I love the way that C.S. Lewis breaks this down. He actually covers this passage in his book, The Four Loves. But he breaks down the, the loves that we see in Scripture and the kind of the Greek meaning of each one. And uh, so we'll, we'll go through them real quick. Storge is the, the first one um, that we see in Scripture, and you'll see in C.S. Lewis's book, book, The Four Loves, which is familial love. That's, that's a, you know, I might not like you, but I love you because I'm related to you. Like, there's moments in life where it's like, we're, we're connected literally by DNA and blood, so we, I love you. We're connected. It's that, you know, thing that's, connect, that connection you have when a child's born. They've not done anything good. I didn't even know them, and there they appear in the world, and my heart is just going berserker, and I love them. That's storge love. That's a familial type of love. And there's philia. That, that's the, the common interest friendship. Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. That's, you know, I, I've, I just have a connection to this person. They CrossFit, you know. We do that together, you know, in the morning. You know, we do the Murph together. And that type of, I act like I've done CrossFit. I have not. Um, I, know that, I know that you can't tell, um, but I haven't. Um, but you've got that common interest type of friendship, brotherly love uh, that you see in Scripture. Eros, that's the romantic love. That's the, you know, the undulating, the thing that we always talk about, that romantic love is very fragile. It's not necessarily bad. I think God created romance. I mean, it's how the earth gets propagated. I mean, we have romantic love. We have this attraction that brings us together. That's Eros. And then we have this all-encompassing agape love. Now, What's interesting about agape, it's, it's a word that we see in Scripture, and it's one that's risen up from, from Scripture. Like, it wasn't really a common word that was talked about. It wasn't something, it was, it literally had to be kind of brought into the Greek translation and developed because of the depth 
that they were trying to get across when talking about the love of God. This all-encompassing, self-sacrificing, like unconcerned with self. Like whether I've known you for a minute or I've known you for a lifetime, I'm willing to give my life away for you. Just extraordinary, doesn't make any sense kind of love. This completely removed from myself type of love. Does that make sense? Like, I don't care about me. I'm giving myself away. So that's the, a little bit of a Greek overview of the type of love. And the, 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 the word that we see here in 1 John, especially in chapter 4, is agape. Speaking of what love we should have as followers of Jesus, but the foundation of that love, being God's love for us, is agape. Now, where are the biblical definitions of that? Well, they're in lots of different places in Scripture. The most prolific you'd find in Philippians chapter 2 and 1 Corinthians chapter 13, um, which 1 Corinthians chapter 13, uh, probably 50% of the weddings that you, know, you go to, somebody is reading this, this list of you know, what love is in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Well, 1 Philippians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul is talking to the Philippian church. He's coming out of one because there's a therefore at the very beginning of this. i got to talk about one. He's talking about how he has sacrificed for the gospel and that there's been lots of you know weight coming against him but he's he's because of the because of Jesus because of the gospel because he's received the most amazing gift in Jesus he's carried on and now he's telling the philippians you must carry on too and that's why you see it right here he says therefore if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ like I was if any comfort from what his love the love that God's extended you. If any common sharing in the spirit, any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete, being like-minded, meaning being like-minded with Christ. He's trying to say, hey, look how Christ lived, having the same love, agape, being in one spirit and of one mind, being unified as the body. This is the thing that should be common amongst all of you. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself. So humility is even wrapped in this agape love. You feeling that? Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. And then we jump into 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It just rolls it right off. Starting in verse 4, it says, love is patient, love is kind. Right? Love is patient, love is kind. I mean, I'm already starting to ask myself, I'm a follower of Jesus, and so that makes me a child of God, but do I, John's saying I should love this way, like this is the type of love that's in me, and I'm like, am I patient? Am I kind? Well, then we have to kind of move into the second phase of all of this, which is, okay, what love is, we, we see and understand agape, but what, what love isn't? In the rest of 1 Corinthians chapter, it says love is patient, love is kind, and then it says what? It starts to say what love isn't. It doesn't envy, it doesn't boast. It's not proud, it doesn't dishonor, it's not self-seeking, it's not easily angered, and it keeps no record of wrongs. And when, when, I, when I read that and I think, okay, this is what it's supposed to be, this is how I'm supposed to look, this is what it looks like to, to, to love the way that God says will be a reflection of Jesus to the world. If your plan A and I always say this, like it's not church staff as plan A so that the gospel gets propagated in Jacksonville Beach, you know? You got worship leaders, you got youth ministry people, you've got a pastor, you've got, and then we get to listen and take notes and, and that's how it works. No, you are plan A. You guys, 
We are all in this together as the church. Outside these walls, we are the movement that moves out and that people see exactly what Dave said, that Jesus saves and rescues and nothing else will. Nothing else will on planet Earth. So, but they're going to see it, and they're going to see the reflection of who God is through my love. And this is what it looks like. It doesn't end. He doesn't boast. It's not proud. It's not dishonoring. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. And it keeps no record of wrongs. I mean, I start out right at the very beginning. How well am I doing this? I mean, this is just me talking about me. Do I envy? Yeah, I envy. I mean, do you ever look at somebody and see them doing something and think, I wish I could do that? Like, in, in a bad way? Like, I mean, I'm not... I'm, me and Dave were just talking about this a couple weeks ago because we were awful. We were playing pool, and we're both terrible at it. Like, I mean, he's better than me, and he's really, really bad. I mean, you can imagine. Yeah, you're thinking you're going to take my money. I will not put any money on the pool table because I'm terrible at it. But we both were just in this conversation about, I mean, I hate being bad at stuff. And I know that's an obvious thing. It's just like, but why? Because we, and we envy. We see somebody that does it amazing, and we're like, gosh, that's amazing. I mean, Kenny was playing bass. I mean, if you're a musician, yeah, somebody's like shouting because they're like, I play bass, and that dude was just electrifying the bass. There was something that was happening, and he was. It was just amazing, just getting after it. I, I, the Holy Spirit came as soon as he hit that high note on the bass because who hits high notes on the bass but Kenny? And he's like, I mean, Stevie Wonder came in. I think he got sight, and it was crazy. I mean, it was just amazing. But you see something amazing like that, and you, you're you, you're like, why can't, you know, where, where's me? I always have said this. Like, I feel like a medium at a lot of things. I just want to be really good at one thing. And we envy. I mean, you move on. Does not boast. You know, I mean, you know, I'd like to say that I, I, don't, I don't boast. My kids are already laughing that, that I, this is on here. Um, you know, back in 2014, I, I don't remember even what the sermon was about. That's how powerful it was. But I, I remember I... I made, at one point in my sermon, I made fun of profile pics, like the, you know, what we put on our Facebook and our Instagram, you know, the profile pics of, you know, here's me, I'm awesome, this is the most attractive I'll ever be in humankind, you know, I won't ever look any better. And, and I, had, I made fun of myself because I was, it was like a surf pic where I just looked awesome. I mean, it was like it hid all the bad stuff and I looked good and I was like in a barrel like this and it was all blue and beautiful and I was like, you know, like that. And I mocked myself and then I put... A, a picture of, you know, me looking, you know, kind of overweight, jumping off a rock like that, like just to humili you know, humiliate myself. Um, and then I didn't really just, I never posted any, like when I'm, when I'm on the surf report, I never post anything like, you know, here's me on the surf report today. Um, and if you do that, it's great. Um, I, I have humility issues. So for you, it's not a problem. Um, it might be. But when I, when I, uh, my kids are laughing because they're like, yeah, but you post it to the Harmon stream every single time. Like we have a, a five spot, you know, it's like our own, you know, insider social media. And I'll always like, look at dad shredding and like five pictures of me on the surf report. And then my kids, of course, their kids, they zoom in on like the worst, like the fat side of my body. And they're like, dad bod, awesome dad, woo, hang 10. Um, but boasting, it isn't proud, doesn't take credit. You know, I mean, I, I feel like that's that one thing. If somebody took credit for something that you did, it might, it's not dishonoring, talking about, about somebody behind their back. I mean, I feel like we're in a culture, in a society where we tear people down in order to lift ourselves up. We, we, we break people down in, in, a, in a conversation. We almost feel, there's, there's, there's situations where you can feel tense, tense moments where somebody's being honored and somebody else is uncomfortable with it. Because they're like, I've done those things before. 
too, and they want to be honored, and they want to be lifted up. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. I mean, that was one I had to think about because I'm like, this is love, and this is the love that we're supposed to carry. Am I, I am easily angered. And usually, anger is an indication of what's really going on in the heart. It's usually an indication of what you put your hope in that somebody took from you. And it's, it has nothing to do with Jesus. They took my position. They took my glory. They took my time. They took something from me, and it's made me angry. Or they, they, they humiliated me in some way. They said they were right. I thought I was right. They, they proved in front of other people that they, they're right, and they really didn't prove it, but it looked like that, and I got angry. I mean, you just get angry, emotionally angry. And it gets down to the heart level of what our idols are, what we... What we've put in the position of Jesus. What's our God? What satisfies the soul? That's what makes us angry when those things get taken. It also keeps no record of wrongs. Love doesn't keep a record of wrongs. I mean, in my relationship with my wife. I mean, it, it's, it's a, when, we, when we argue, we just argued this week. Uh, and I act like only once. We've only argued once this week. Um, not, I mean, just being honest. But it's, it's always a list. Like, yes, I got angry, but look what you did. You know, it's like always the, the list of wrongs. Here's the list. It's, yeah, here's a, I wouldn't have done that and gone, whoa, if you would have made them do this because they're supposed to get this done. And I was, came home and you were like, you know, it's the list of record and of the wrongs. I'm this way because of these things. We have to justify. And love doesn't do that. At least agape doesn't. This Love that is born of God and that as a follower of Jesus and a child of God is supposed to be my representation to the world. And when you look at this list, I mean, you have to think about it. It's, I always think, oh, is this a list I've got to figure out how to do? I've got to figure out how to get, I've got to quit, I've got to stop being self-seeking, I've got to quit boasting, I've got to quit putting myself first, and I've got to put others first. And I'm almost exhausted looking at it. But, but really what, what, the author, what, what Paul is trying to say in 1 Corinthians and Philippians and what John's trying to say in 1 John chapter 4 is, is, is more complex but also more holistically looking at who we are as human beings. And that list exposes that we are self-preservationists. When we, when we cease to remember who, who God is and what he's done for us, we put ourselves first because we have to, our, we're insecure. We need to feel worthy. We need to feel approved of. We need to feel loved. We need to feel like the world around us thinks we, we're doing something valuable. And if we live life like that, we're going to trample on other people as we do it. When other people take it from us, we're going to get angry. We're going to put ourselves in positions to succeed while pushing other people aside. It's all, the list is a self-preservation. It's a defensive mechanism because you're not getting what you want. Because you're, you continually look at yourself and you go, hey, I need to fix this. I don't feel good about myself. I don't feel worthy. I don't feel loved. So what do I have to do? I have to take it from you. Well, you can't extend and sacrificially give to anyone at the same time you're taking something from them. And th these, these lists that you see are not a, I have to do this. It's to expose us so that we understand that we don't have a shot on our own. We have no hope to love 
like John's telling us to love at all. He's, he's putting something in, in this position. He's showing us that we have an orphan mentality, that we're all at the table fighting for food because we, what, what if? There's, there's a bunch of food on the table and there's a bunch of orphans here and we're all trying to get ours. And he's saying we've, we've still got an orphan mentality. But what he's saying here is if you're a child of God, you're not an orphan. You're a son. You're a daughter. He's saying that's the only way that you could be loving in the agape sense, in the self-sacrificial sense. He's saying you should be able to be vulnerable and exposed because of something that John says later in this passage. C.S. Lewis says, says this about love. He says to love at all is to be vulnerable. This is why we don't do it, because it's vulnerable. Love anything, and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it up carefully, round it with hobbies, little luxuries, avoid all entanglements, lock it up safe in a casket or a coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. There's no way you're not going to risk to love. And we're, as survival people, we're averted to risk. So how in the world can I be vulnerable? How in the world can I sacrifice unconditionally, knowing I'm going to give myself away, and many times I'm going to get nothing back in return from this person or this group of people? Or this situation? How do I love that way when my instinct is to survive, to protect myself, to defend myself, to find worthiness, to find approval, and to find love in the world? If that's my instinct, how in the world am I going to make myself vulnerable? Well, I love that John goes right to it in verse 9. I mean, if we look right here in the passage, he, he begins to lean towards God's love. He says, this is how God showed his love among us. He's representing something here. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might, what, live through him. He's, his expectation is not that you grind it out and you could figure out how to love the way that he does. The only way it's going to happen is if that you live through him. By the power of his spirit, he says, this is love. Not that we loved God. He wants to make sure you don't earn it. You can't earn God's love. You can't earn his approval. You can't earn your worthiness by figuring out how to love God by doing all the stuff. I went on mission trips. I did all the stuff. I served in children's ministry. You know, I went across the globe. I did. You can't love God and earn it. He's saying, no. That's not the way that it works. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for sins. He's, he's leaning towards the fact that the, the engine... And the possibility of us actually loving the way that John's talking about doesn't come from us. It's not born of us. It comes completely from him. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 21 and 23. He's talking to the, the church in Corinth. He says, you guys are competing not only outside the church, but with each other inside the church. And it's getting ridiculous. He's like, you're stomping on each other to try to be somebody. Why are you trying to be somebody? And this is the way that he says it. He says, let no one boast in men. Stop worrying about who you're connected to, what groups you're in, and how cool you are. 
He says, for all things are yours. All things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. And you are Christ and Christ is God's. He's saying it's all yours. If you have the mentality and you realize and you wake up by the power of the Spirit that it's all yours, then it changes who you are. When you realize that you're approved of by the King, when you realize that you're not an orphan but you're a son and you're a daughter, that you carry the perfection of Christ and you're no longer needing to build a case of worthiness for yourself. You're trying to be approved of by people when the King of the universe approves of you. You're trying to elicit love when the king of the universe, he loves you. In fact, the word agape, if you dig down into the root, what, what type of love it is, it's a preferential love. In other words, God's saying, I prefer you, which is a mystery and weird because there's a lot of us. But he's looking at you individually saying, I picked you, I chose you before the foundation of the world. I prefer you. The human heart needs to feel that. Do we need to be preferred? I mean, that's what we, we want from a father as he looks at us to say, oh, out of all the other kids, you're mine. I prefer you. In romantic relationships, it's the same thing. If you're wondering, you know, you're still in the talking phase, which I never even was in that because we didn't have like levels of dating, but they do now. We're just talking, which means there might be other people in the mix. We never know. We're just talking, you know. But when they finally say, you're the one. Out of these, these are the couple other guys that kind of dig me, but I like you nothing better in life than to be preferred. Agape is a, I prefer, I prefer you. That's the kind of love you're loved by God with. That changes, changes the heart and allows us to not navel gaze, not look at our own interests, but look at the interests of others. It's like a wealthy person that, that has inexhaustible resources. I'm not saying every wealthy person is generous, but you are way more likely to be generous if you know that giving tons of your life away, tons of your money away, will not affect the bottom line. Because you're wealthy, because you have everything. Beth and I were having this discussion about American Idol. Like, how can people have... Like, the judges are sitting there judging talent many times that is better than theirs. Like, I see Katy Perry, and not that I don't think Katy Perry is awesome. She's awesome. But... There's people that sing on American Idol. I'm like, gosh, she's way better than Katy Perry, right? How does Katy Perry just not sit there and get sad? Like, I love her attitude. She cries, weeps watching them, just appreciating the talent, thinking in her mind, way better than me, but totally secure, cheering, cheering them on. Like, how does that happen? Well, she's... She's not worried about, what are they going to take my, I'm Katy Perry. I'm going to take my position. She's already arrived, already a rock star, already solidified. She is now a judge on American Idol. She's already there. She already has all things in that world. You picking up what I'm laying down? We have all things. And we so quickly forget the gospel. Because if you're wondering what will change it all, like how will I begin to do this? Well, you won't. He can, and he has. He's changed everything by the power of his blood. He's lifted our chin off of ourselves and upward toward him, who we were made by and for him, and given us a road home to be reunited with the God that created us. 
satisfying all of the brokenness, no longer having to be defensive, no longer having to build a case of worthiness and approval, giving us the ability to be reflectors, beautiful, loving reflectors in the world around us. That's how it happens. John John says it. He says, dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. He's saying the engine is God loving us. In that case, we can love one another. No one's ever seen God, but if we love one another, he's saying nobody has seen God, but how are they going to see? But if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. Other people will see it. Christ in you, hope of glory, out into the world. That's how they're going to know. It's not going to be, look at me, I've done it all right. Come up to where I live in the most moral high ground. Yeah, that attracts people. Giving your life away, descending instead of ascending in life, putting yourself last instead of first. Now that is the stuff that people go, how in the world do they do that? How, how How do they, where does that selfless sacrifice come from? Where does the, the real, not false humility, like, no, you go, you go, you do it, you're awesome. No, but real humility, where does that come from? When people are asking those questions, that's, that's the road, that's the intended road that God's put in, in play here with us, the church, to lead people to the truth. Because you're rich, you're wealthy. Don't you want to give away your wealth? Don't you want to give away your sonship, your daughtership to the rest of the world? They so desperately need it. This world is broken and fractured and needs, needs nothing more than to come home. It's what they need. You know, I love that communion is such a beautiful representation. I mean, you look at the table, and we often think of it as this routine, this sacrament that we do in the church. You know, so we got every six weeks, we're going to do communion together. You know, we got to do it. We got to do baptisms. They're coming up. But no, it, it is the thing that Jesus put in place. He said, keep doing this so that you're reminded, so that you remember that you're not lost, but you're found, that you're not dead, you're alive, that you don't have to fix all the stuff. I've done it. I paid it all. I paid the price. Stop the scrambling. Stop the competing. Remember who you are. Do not allow the enemy to speak lies over you not worth anything, that you're not valuable, and that you're not loved. I want you to see. I want you to have a vision. I want you to do it together. I want you to look at each other. I want want you to do it as a community, a diverse community, unified by one singular thing, the blood of Jesus. And when he was with his friends, he did it very simply. He took the bread, and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Sacrificial love for you, my brothers. Broken for you. In the same way he takes the cup, he says, it's a new covenant in my blood. There was a system before, and now there's a Savior. There was a, there was a whole list of things that you were doing before, but it was all leading to this, and I would complete it because you couldn't. And we get to trade places. I'm taking your sin to the cross. I'm bleeding out on Mount Calvary, and you're taking my perfection. And you're going to eat this bread, and you're going to drink this cup, and you're going to continue to do it until you see me again. And do it together as a church. This is our community. This is what we do together. This is how we remember, and this is how we love. If we stop gathering like this, if we stop doing this, if we think we can do faith on our own, you're just going to go back to navel-gazing. It's going to be just about you. Who are you going to sacrifice for if you're by yourself? But we do it together. We do it together. 
So if the servers would come forward, you know, I'll just say this, you know, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the Apostle Paul talks about communion. You know, the Corinthian church did a lot wrong. Um, and uh, Paul had to say a lot of different things. They were full of passion, full of the Holy Spirit, but also just full of energy. And, and they, they managed to jack up communion. But one of the things the Apostle Paul wanted to say, he just said, hey, this is a, this is a blessed, sacred place. It's a blessed, sacred thing that we're doing. If you're, if you're not a follower of Jesus, there's, there's no need or obligation to, to come to the table. He says, don't, don't, there's no, re, no reason to do that. This is for the follower of Jesus. Now, I know that sounds exclusive, but guess what? The table's for anyone. It's, it's for anyone, but it comes through Jesus, right? So there's a, there's a, a decision, but also a spirit and heart change that has to happen. And what's beautiful is today, maybe, maybe you're not a follower of Jesus, but your mind and your heart and the, the very being of who you are over the last year, the last month or the, the last couple of days or even in worship today or at some point, you've gone from wondering if this is true, wondering if you believe to, I believe. I believe Jesus is real. I believe he is the one that saves and nothing else does. I believe that he gave his life away for me. And maybe it's the first time you've done that. And guess what? Today, communion table open for you. It's for anyone. He's inviting you to give your life to him and take communion. And then guess what? In a couple of weeks, you get baptized. I would get baptized for sure. Just like Dave said, opportunity to shout it from the mountaintop. Jesus saved your soul. Not ashamed to say that I love Jesus how much he loved me and it represent going from death to life and just as we pray just allow God by the power of his Holy Spirit to speak to you because I believe some, somebody in here God is speaking to in just that way so I'll pray and you can pray at your seat for a little while longer if you want you can come forward immediately if you want if you feel ready uh, for communion uh, and we'll get through them God we just we love you we love this table we love what it represents you are so good to us. You gave your very life away. And then you gave us illustrations that no pastor could come up with that trump everything so that we would always remember what you did for us and 